welcome to Valley. If we haven't met before, my name is Michael. I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to see some faces of family that are here visiting and just want to say that I'm really happy that all of you guys are with us this evening. Um, we are have been in a series going through the Gospel of Matthew for a while and I had a passage or I had a teaching written for a passage last week and then I wrote, gave a different sermon last week. I had it ready to go for today and then some stuff happened this week and so I want to talk about something else today and so um, is not a light teaching and so if you need to brace yourself then <laughs> go for it. Um, um, in case for some reason you haven't heard um, on Tuesday, May 24th, a man entered an elementary school in Texas and killed 19 children between the ages of 9 and 11 and two teachers. Um, it is just a sickening kind of evil. And I'm sure, like me, you might have kind of gone in and out of waves of processing what's happened, mourning, questioning, anger, maybe some numbness or some confusion. Um, and so what I'm going to share tonight maybe has some opinion mixed in that you can take or leave, but also mixed in might be what I feel as a, a pastoral burden for, for my church, um, for this, for you guys here. Um, and so as I tread carefully talking about this, maybe with just a tiny bit of courage, I ask that you would give me a tiny bit of grace if I say something that you don't like or... Um, maybe uh, listen with some humility towards me. So um, it seems that within hours, if not minutes, of the news breaking this story that the social and cultural conversation turned from mourning loss to explaining, or attempting to explain why this sort of thing happens. Looking for solutions so that it will never happen again, criticizing those whose solutions you disagree with, blaming others for getting in the way of those solutions. Um, it's as if the pain is just too much for us to process, and the existence of this kind of evil confounds us. And we're not able or we're not willing to just feel the pain and acknowledge the existence of this kind of evil. And so we try maybe inadvertently to reduce and simplify because of the, term, the turmoil that's happening in our souls and we shift the focus and we talk about things that we can do. Americans are a practical and pragmatic people and so we want to do and we want to fix, especially in the face of something like this that has caused so much pain. And so we move on maybe accidentally from simply and maybe solely grieving and lamenting to blaming or fixing or attempting to fix, which brings us to the overwhelming conversation of what would stop this and who is responsible for this being possible. Is it gun control laws? Have we failed to put proper measures in place to stop bad people from buying weapons? Are politicians to blame for being in the pocket of the gun lobby, failing to implement common sense policies? Is it a failure of police and emergency response and preparedness? Could things have been prevented by better training? Is it a failure of security measures? Could this have been pre prevented by locked doors, armed guards? I'm repeating things that 
have probably been coming in and out of your head if you've been watching the news or reading. And in response to those questions, I would say two things. One, I don't think we're in the realm of my opinion. I don't think that any one of those things will fix this problem. And two, if you disagree with that, if you do think that there is one of those things that is the enabling factor or the primary enabling factor and I happen to disagree with you or another brother or sister in Christ disagrees with you, we can and should be friends still. We are the family of God and it is not fitting for our answers to those questions to divide the family of God. And so we can disagree and still sit next to each other and worship with each other. And my, my pastoral word, if you'll allow me, is that you cannot put all your eggs in the basket of societal reform. Whatever that looks like, whatever you think is the thing that is behind the thing that needs to be fixed so that this kind of thing doesn't happen. Your hope for that problem of this kind of evil cannot be in laws. I'm speaking to my brothers and sisters in Christ. Our hope cannot be in laws, policies, training, or reform really of any kind. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't care about those things or that we shouldn't work towards addressing all of those. My thoroughly uneducated, unprofessional gut opinion is that it probably would be wise for our country to address every single one of those areas, laws and policy and training and prevention and everything. But I'll say again, we cannot be deceived as the people of God into placing our deepest hope when we are feeling the deepest feels about this and it's turning into anger or frustration, we cannot be deceived into placing our hope in any kind of societal reform to be the thing that deals with this kind of evil. And I understand the impulse to do so. What happened is sickening and we wanna put blame on someone or something, it helps. We want our brains to be able to wrap around a cause and to hate that cause and to destroy that cause. And I wanna say, I think that's actually a good impulse. I think that is the image of God buried deep in the DNA of every human being, broken and sinful and warped though it is, but still made in God's image and carrying with us this intrinsic impulse to burst with anger and to retaliate when we see evil like this. But I'll say again, we cannot be deceived into placing our deepest hope in any kind of societal, cultural reform to deal with this kind of evil. And that is for one big main reason. Our society does not agree and probably will never agree on the source of evil. Our culture doesn't really have a name for this kind of evil. But the people of God do have a name for it, and it is Satan. Satan is the source and the driving force behind evil and sin. And yes, humans are responsible for their choices and God does hold humans responsible for their choices. But the reason people do evil things is because Satan is a deceiver, a tempter and a liar and he is opposed to God and to humans and wants to destroy all the good things that God has made. And he has been doing this from the very beginning of our story. He lied to Adam and Eve about what would happen if they ate the fruit. He said, you won't die. I think he knew that they would die. I think he knew what would happen. He wanted them to disobey God and die. Satan incited the jealous and violent nature of Cain to kill Abel. 
Just a few chapters later, he incited this man named Lamech to kill men and take their wives for himself. He incited and tempted generations so much, just, just in the book of Genesis, Genesis that it, they got so evil and detached from their role as God's image bearers that God said he was sorry, regretted that he made them, and needed to restart this creation project with Noah. The Bible is a, a bloody saga that is filled with death and murder, not because God is violent, but because Satan is a deceiving, tempting murderer who wants to drive people away from God and destroy them. I'm just gonna list off a few scriptures that describe how our enemy works. 1 John 3, 8. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Acts 5, Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land. John eight forty four. Jesus accusing the Pharisees, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. First Peter 5, 8, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Revelation 20, verses two and three, describing our future for the church that we celebrate. He sees the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, bound him for a thousand years, threw him into the abyss and locked it and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. Luke tells us in these words that Satan entered into Judas, incited Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus. There's three more key scriptures that to me frame how we think about Satan and evil. John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Ephesians 6, 11 and 12, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. It's a lot of Paul Christianese language to say our enemy is Satan and his demons. Last kind of foundational passage of how the devil works. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, took Jesus when he was tempted. He showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. The implication is that it, the kingdoms of the world, in some way belong to Satan. So there's three things that we need to remember. One, Satan is our true enemy, not humans not any human, not flesh and blood, Satan. Satan's sole purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. He's described as a snake, he's described as crafty and cunning, but he is a murderer. He's not trying to just trick, he's trying to destroy. And finally, Satan has a unique power and authority over the world right now. And Jesus has done something about that with his death and his resurrection, but it needs to be completed with Jesus' return and his destruction of Satan. 
So all three of those truths, that Satan is our true enemy, that his purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy, and that he has a unique power and authority over the world right now until Jesus returns, they have to color the way that you see evil in the world. It has to be the filter through which you see what happens in the world. Behind every act of evil, we need to see Satan as the true enemy. We need to see Satan doing what he has always been doing. And we need to see it as Satan doing what he's doing because he has a unique power and authority in the world until Jesus returns. And so, we, um, the people of God, what we need to do primarily, and there are lots of things for us to do to try to help. I'm not trying to discourage anyone from one having an opinion about what will help or trying to help, but as brothers and sisters, as people of the Lord, we have to plead and long for Jesus to return, literally to ask him to come back, to lament and long for his return because his return and his return only will mean the end of Satan and the end of this kind of evil. Let's look at a few of these scriptures I read again in their entirety. First John 3, 8. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. John 10, 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Finally, Romans 16, 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So what do we, as the people of God, do when we are faced with evil like this? Um, it goes against every impulse that I have naturally, maybe you as well. It goes against the cultural um, impulse. It's not what we do as Americans, but we need to cry and we need to sing what the church has cried and sung through far too many tragedies for thousands of years, which is how long, O oh Lord, will this happen? And we say, come, Lord Jesus. Would your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven? And so we practice, we need to practice and relearn the discipline of longing for the Lord Jesus to return and to be the rescue and the reform that we actually need. And it bothers and it goes against our pragmatic and practical tendencies to wanna to fix things and to do things. But the church is not going to destroy the enemy by making changes. Even when changes are necessary to policy and strategy and training, the enemy will be destroyed when Jesus returns and crushes him. And so I want to warn you, my church family, of the devil's schemes to be alert and of sober mind do not be pulled into the godless rhetoric, conservative or progressive, of what will save us from evil. Don't let the conversation, wherever you are, it is coming into you, don't let that conversation pull you in to think that anything besides the return of Jesus will right this wrong or right these wrongs. The next question in my mind that I ask is, um, what is God waiting for? Where is he and why is he letting things like this happen? It is not a 
question that is easily answered and the likelihood of you walking out of here feeling like you've got an answer and you're like, oh, I never heard it that way before. I'm good to go, is very small. Um, but I remember this lecture and a, a discussion that I had in seminary on this very topic from a dear friend and mentor and professor of mine named Gary Brashears. And he gave us this handout. Mark, are you willing to start passing that out for me? Thanks. Um, he gave us this handout that Mark's gonna hand out to you. Um, and he walked through what is on this page with beautiful and stunning commentary and explanation. We had good discussion about it. Um, and if you want to grab a copy, or you can also go on your phone. We'll have a link up there. If you go to valleysalem.com slash handouts, there's one little thing of text on there and you can click the link and open it on your phone. Um, I'm going to basically just like summarize what's on the, pra- the page. I won't say much more than what's here. I'll explain what I think to and what I know to. Um, but if what you read here, like, um, causes you to ask some questions or is interesting to you or feel like, oh, that could be helpful. I want, I want to kind of understand what he's saying and Michael didn't help us at all. You could go to uh, the internet and search Gary Brashears and search for the title of this thing or search his name and the problem of evil and you will find probably 10 videos, articles, lectures, things that he has given to various churches around the Northwest. He's talked about this with many, many people in churches. Um, and so if you leave this discussion feeling like, hey, I've got some more questions, I would recommend that you uh, look that up. But what he does is he presents three um, very, very legitimate options as to how we understand suffering and evil and the will of God. All three of these, um, in my opinion, are biblical and reasonable positions, and you are free to disagree with whichever one I think makes the most sense. Um, But for me, the point of the handout isn't necessarily to convince you of one of them. The value in what is here is the acknowledgement that no matter what view you have or what one makes the most sense to you, all of them require the human to bow before God with humility. That we come to this with humility, they require that we acknowledge there's mystery that we do not understand questions we don't have the answer to and they require us to, to ask some questions, to make some statements from the perspective of faith, of trusting who, trusting in the character of God. And so I'm just gonna go over some of what is here. I will not go over everything. I'm not gonna go over the last page. Um, but I'm just gonna read through some of it. I will say if I remember anything that Gary said in the lectures that we've had. Um, but let's look at it. So there are three stories. That's the word that he's using for three kind of frameworks for thinking about Um, where is God in suffering and evil? The first one is meticulous providence. God ordains, that is like a million dollar complicated word in this topic, but God ordains evil for his greater glory and our greater good. In this scenario, God has written a plan where he controls everything to the detail. He either causes or gives permission with a purpose for every single event of history. This is the best of all possible worlds for, God, worlds for God's glory. Um, God is to history as Shakespeare is to Hamlet. He is the author behind everything. And each of these three stories has a statement about the freedom of humans, the sovereignty of God, and then the mystery that comes packaged with this way of thinking about God's sovereignty and human freedom. So in meticulous providence, uh, humans do what we want 
and what God wants. Those are one and the same thing. There's no contrary choice to what God wants to happen. With respect to God's sovereignty, he controls every detail. And the mystery, if this is what primarily makes sense to you, the mystery here that we have to approach with humility is how can God control every detail and humans, and I also add in Satan, still be responsible for evil? That's a mystery. And I'm actually gonna flip to the next page. There's faith statements, faith questions, and I'll read each of them for that corresponding story. So in story one, the faith statement you have to be able to make, if that, if that first meticulous providence option makes sense in your mind, the faith statement you have to be able to make is that God is too good to do evil and too wise to make a mistake. That's a statement you have to make with humility and trust in the character of God. And the question we have to ask with faith is when something happens, what is God's purpose in this? What is God teaching me or us in this? And how can God allow this? Story number two, active providence. God is at war with evil, usually overcoming it with good. So in this story, God is working his battle plan where he directs history to its appointed goal of crushing the serpent, Satan, and establishing his pure creation. And he gives us partnership in ruling the world. And in this scenario, this world is broken and it is the place where God works his glory. God is, in this scenario, God is to history and the events of the world as a captain is to a mutinous ship. With respect to human freedom, humans do what they want within the limits, the confines of the ship. So there is limited contrary choice to what God wants. With respect to God's sovereignty in this kind of scenario, God is not accountable to anyone. His plans and purposes cannot be overcome. God does what he wants, but not everything that happens on this ship, so to speak, is what God wants. So the mystery in this, why doesn't the all-powerful God crush the serpent now? The statement we have to be able to make to agree with story two is that God is loving enough and powerful enough to do good in the worst evil. And the question we have to wrestle with, what is God doing in this? When will Jesus return and stop this? And how can we make his glory known? The third story, free will providence. God allows us to choose evil for the sake of true loving relationship. God has perfect knowledge of all events of history by which he makes his plan. He only occasionally interferes in people's decisions and never for salvation. This is a broken world where God works his glory. In this scenario, God is to history as a good king is to the subjects. With respect to human freedom, humans have the ability to make their own choices. While true choice is limited by humanity and the character of humanity, it is not fixed by an external power. God's sovereignty here, God is not accountable to anyone. His plans and purposes cannot be overcome still. And so the mystery here is how can God control history's outcome and not control people's choices? The statement of faith we have to be able to make if this is what makes sense to us, this third story is that God is working his rescue mission to the world. He loves us and respects our decision to join him or also the decision to not join him. And the question that we have to wrestle with, when will people respond to God's love and join his rescue mission in the world?
Again, all three of those, I think, are biblical, reasonable, legitimate options um, to, as a framework for us to wrestle with how, how do we make sense of the existence of evil and suffering in the world with a God who is loving and just. Um, I happen to think that active providence makes the most sense to me. Um, and it's okay if that's not what makes the most sense to you. Um, I believe that it was, uh, is Gary's uh, preferred position as well, which is why he's written a little bit more about active providence. So each of these next letters and A through N um, are just spelling out the implications of active providence a little bit more. God created image-bearing humans to join him in the war with evil, giving them freedom to rule with him. Satan attacked the humans through deception and shame and defilement entered God's good creation. He limits, frustrates, brings good in the midst of the resulting evil. A couple things to note, evil is the result of the morally significant free actions of God's creatures. And again, I add in, sourced and fueled and enabled by Satan. God is loving enough and powerful enough to bring good out of the worst evil. God works the night shift. I actually love that phrase. He is working at all hours to frustrate and limit um, evil. It's also very important to remember that this is not Eden and that it is not heaven yet. It is a broken world. Physical calamity like disease or in our context, um, murder like this comes from a broken world and is the consequence of a sinful, broken human. The human context of suffering and evil is a place where God's glory can be demonstrated. Um, Gary says he believes in a theology or a theodicy, which is our understanding of God and suffering and evil in the world. He believes in a theology of protest. Um, and I think that I have, and maybe perhaps you, have missed out on this part of the journey of wrestling with evil is simply declaring when it is evil, <laughs> saying this is wrong. In, in your spirit, you don't have to do it on social media or to your friends or neighbors, you can, but in your spirit to say, God, what just happened? This is so wrong and messed up. I can trust a God who will die for me in light of the life of Emmanuel, I will be tenaciously loyal to the God I do not get. God is active and involved, choosing to join us in suffering as he wars against it. He is currently overcoming evil through the mercy of redemption with believers, with the church as part of this force. God's glory is shown in our faith response to suffering and evil, not in the circumstances. If God were to just eliminate evil, he would have to eliminate me too. And that last one, we pray. How long, O oh Lord? Like all these psalms listed here, we plead for God's kingdom to come like Jesus instructed us to pray. And we say, come, Lord Jesus. Which brings us back to our response as the church, when we are faced with the evil that we have witnessed this week, I think we need to sit at the feet of Jesus with humility 
and faith, acknowledging all of the things that we don't understand, protesting the evil in no uncertain terms, and literally saying out loud or in your spirit, how long, O Lord, until you make this right? How long until you destroy our true enemy? And we say, come, Lord Jesus, may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And so if you've been like me in and out of the waves of processing what's happened, whether you're coming in here numb, maybe you've been blessed with a little bit of a reprieve from thinking about it, which is okay, um, or if you're coming in just brokenhearted, um, I just wanna invite you to do this, that you would lament, that you would say, how long, O oh Lord, that you would plead for Jesus to come. So I just wanna give you a few minutes to do that right now before we pray and sing. <laughs>